Welcome, everybody, to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, uh, I'm here today with my friend, Dr. Sam Morello, and we are talking about her brand spanking new research, which was published in JAVMA in January. The title of her publication is Comparison of Resident and Intern Salaries with the Current Living Wage as a Quantitative Estimate of Financial Strain Among Postgraduate Veterinary Trainees. <gasps> That's a mouthful. We're talking about what interns and residents get paid in vet medicine, and we're talking about why that is important for the profession as whole, uh, why it is the way that it is, and what it might be in the future. That's what we're talking about. Guys, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame. Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Sam Morello. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Andy. I'm excited to be back. Well, you're going to keep coming back, I hope, uh, as long as you as long as you keep putting out uh, fascinating articles that are well researched and uh, that help push our profession forward. So thank you for doing that. Always my pleasure. And yeah, that's my goal. So uh, we'll keep tallying these up. Yeah. So for those who don't know you, you, uh, I met you at. Um, a women's leadership summit uh, before in the before days uh, before the pandemic, and you have since then continued to publish on gender equity and professional sustainability. You touch on finance and education and a number of other um, sort of aspects of our profession. Uh, what do you What have you been up to recently? How How have you How have you been through the pandemic? <laughs> yeah, so um, I guess I'm one of the statistics that are out there. Um, in the great, uh, what are they calling it? The, the great, great resignation. Uh, yeah. The great resignation. The big quit. Yeah. So um, I've I've made some professional life changes since then. Um, I spent uh, over a decade in academia as a large animal surgeon, and it was a great decade in my life. Um, but I've decided that uh, it was time for me to experience something different in the professional space, and I wanted to see kind of how more veterinarians were actually experiencing their lives out in private practice. And so um, I decided to move on for my academic job. And I too now am out in the private practice realm, um, really working for myself, doing some consulting, um, doing a lot in the imaging space. But I haven't left my my research efforts and sort of passion behind. Um, And so I'm continuing that, um, mostly through collaborations with the Cornell Center for Veterinary Business um, and Entrepreneurship, where I have a faculty appointment. Um, I'm interfacing with a bunch of new groups. Um, I'm excited to be part of the um, Women's Veterinary Leadership Development Initiative. I'm on the board now. And um, yeah, just sort of making my way through through that new life and, and excited to be there here um, and all the sort of challenges, but um, new adventures that's going to lead me down also to help me with my research. Yeah, you you stay very busy. You uh you have a new article out in JAVMA, uh, the Journal of the AVMA. It's coming out in print in January, but the digital version is already out and it's open to everyone. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's called Comparison of Resident and Intern Salaries with the Current Living Wage as a Quantitative Estimate of Financial Strain Among Postgraduate Veterinary Trainees. Sam Morello, in plain English, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so um, very academic title as usual. but it's Extremely what it- <laughs> impressive title. 
<laughs> what it really means is, um, I mean, it, it's a it's a really it's a really simple topic, which is that house officers or um, residents and interns get paid pretty poorly, which is something everybody knows. Everybody's known for a million years, um, but how poorly is a hard thing to quantify, and so. It's the topic I've wanted to study for a long time because I think it really intersects well with a lot of the broader topics that I and a lot of other people in our industry have been interested in. It intersects with um, mental and physical well-being. It intersects with diversity, women and families. It intersects with how we value people in our profession and concepts of burnout and retention. Um, and so what we did with this paper is tried to really quantitate how our individuals paid. And to do right. that, we used a metric called the living wage. And the living wage is actually a quantifiable thing. It's an estimate, um, or it's, it's actually a, a quantified number of yeah. essentially how much money you need to live on. Um, and it's the line sort of between where you're relying on some sort of federal or state subsistence programs, subsidies like food stamps or other, other government programs that um, basically help you meet your, your minimum, um, minimum needs like housing or food or transportation or healthcare. Um, and just above that line, is the amount of money um, that meets a living wage. And so we used that number, which using uh, a specific website, which I'll get to later, that allowed us to evaluate minimum wage based on local area. So we could look at it at the county level. So we could compare how much interns and residents were making in their specific location of practice to the local living wage and really compared just how much or how little money they were making with respect to how much money they needed to live on at a very yeah. low level. So so let me say this back to you uh, in a different way. When we talk about living wage, we're talking about not sustenance wage, right? The, this is actually just being able to to not have assistance, not have food stamps, things like that. And that dollar amount is going to be significantly different depending on where you are in the world, right? Like if you're right. in New York City, there's a bigger amount of money that you need to have a basic standard of life, as opposed to if you live in the Appalachian Mountains, uh, you know, in North Carolina, where cost of living is extremely low, correct? Right, that's exactly right. I like using the analogy, there's a Manhattan, New York, and there's a Manhattan, Kansas. Um, and those two Manhattans are never gonna be the same. So yeah, you've nailed it. Gotcha. And so it, it doesn't account for things like, I mean, it, it accounts for things like basic healthcare needs, basic, um, basic lower level living, but it doesn't account for things that, you know, most people in veterinary medicine are contending with, like certainly student loans, but even simple things like paying for a pet, you know, their food, um, their vaccinations, their preventative care, um, seeing family, going out to eat. If you need new tires for your car, none of a living wage, uh, none of a living wage accounts for any of those sort of life things that you and I, at this point in our lives, I think, Andy, take for granted as yeah. something that we can pay for when it comes yeah. up. Yeah. Phil, I, want you to, I want to hear a little bit more philosophically about this, because I think it's fascinating. And I hadn't really put together the, the larger implications. Talk to me a little bit about resident intern pay in the intersection with equity, with, uh, with, um, 
with burnout and retention with women and families. Make that argument for me a little bit that, that this matters in the context of those larger issues. So, yeah, that's actually probably a, a couple arguments rolled into one. Yeah, it, it is a lot. But I guess, yeah, I'd like, yeah. I, help let's, me see through your eyes in this. Let's start with that. Let's start with the burnout phenomenon. So um, there's a lot of evidence out there that financial strain is deeply linked to mental health and burnout. So one great piece of evidence in the veterinary realm comes from the Merck, uh, the Merck well-being studies. They, they have two of them, actually. One came out in 2018. One came out, I think, in 2020. I think I'm getting those dates right. Um, Volk was the primary author on those. And they were able to directly link um, that financial strain and inadequate financial reward were two of the biggest factors that predisposed individuals in the veterinary profession to burnout. And given what we can show are the average incomes um, for interns and residents, they're in, you know, they're in the, the low 30s. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty clear uh, recipe for predisposing those individuals to burnout. And, and recognizing that these are the early years of your career, especially for a resident. You know, we're looking at internship and residency years. So anywhere from four to five, sometimes even six years, depending on how many internships it takes um, to get into that residency program, that sets the tone um, and really can create almost a um, uh, like a almost a negative um, a, a negative accrual of of um, of ho- however we want to quantify what leads to burnout really early on in a career um, and can set people down a path to sort of lower that threshold for for leading to burnout. Um, there's also wonderful evidence. Um, I think wonderful is probably the wrong word for it, but there's also very. <laughs> Very specific evidence from the American Psychological Association um, that financial strain is the largest source of stress for Americans um, year after year uh, in this country. So I, I think a lot of that's pretty pretty implicit. Um, yeah. uh, and and just being able to demonstrate how 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 large that strain is was a really important part of this study for us. So I think that gets to that burnout side of it. Um, yeah. Um, should we move on to the, yeah, to the, yeah, to we, the other stuff yeah. or you want to drill down no, no, no. more on the burnout start? Okay. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, no, I think, I think that's, I think that's good. I think that, I think that, I think that makes, to me, that, that makes a lot of sense, especially I, I think what I really needed to hear was the point that we were talking about the beginning of people's careers and, uh, and sort of the ripple effects and the, you know, um, we talk about con- compounding and opportunity costs where you could be doing other things and uh, it, it sets yeah. off a career trajectory. And so I, that makes it, I guess that makes a lot of sense to me as to why we would sort of see the, uh, the downstream effects of, of resident and intern pay that, that we see. Yeah. I mean, actually to make a comment on what you just said though, the um, you said compounding effects, you know, there's this idea of, of, of almost needing to play catch up later. So you have these years of sometimes we refer to it as as lost income. So these four, five, six years, um, you're making very little money, um, your debt is accruing, or you're accruing more debt sometimes because, you know, something we showed in this study is that for some people, the amount of money that they're earning is actually less than what a living wage might be in in the area that they're living in for um, 
for, I think, between um, 15% of residents and 22% of interns, their their pre-tax income was less than what their local living wage was. So that's a pretty high percent of individuals who may not be able to meet their living needs. And these are, these are, I mean, these are people working at specialty hospitals, uh, working yeah. in universities um, yeah. with, with teaching uh, positions, a lot of them, you know, like I remember Correct. in vet school, uh, residents did a lot of the, the teaching and the mentoring and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're working, they're working in, in big, well-respected hospitals and they're, and they're taking on a lot of the same duties that specialists are. Um, and so, so they may be accruing even more debt aside from what their interest rate is already doing for them, for those of them that come in with debt. Um, and so the years afterwards, trying to play catch up to get out of that debt or to make the money that they didn't make over those years, um, to say nothing of the amount of money that they weren't able to put towards, you know, a retirement account, um, a, a good friend of mine. Dr. Brent Mayab, um, he's a um, he's 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 one of the chief medical officers um, at at Royal Canaan. He's really invested in 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 personal finance and, and helping young veterinarians tackle that issue. And he did some um, great um, sort of rough calculations back in the napkin, sort of calculations for me to to show what um, a hypothetical. Um, a hypothetical sort of loss of um, retirement savings might look like for mm -hmm. an average resident. And hypothetically, if you were not doing an internship or residency and you were saving $200 a month, so about $2,400 a year, um, versus if you were doing an internship and residency and you weren't saving that much money over four years, it's only a difference of somebody who might be saving about $9,600 over those four years versus somebody that isn't. But mm -hmm. that $9,600 over the course of, you know, a career where you retire yeah. at 65 um, could, uh, with like an 8% um, uh, compounding interest rate, could add up to almost $200,000 by the time you retire. So yeah. that loss of income, just trying to, trying to catch up to that over the course of your career, I mean, that's, that's an added stress in and of itself, right? That's a stress that's going to stay with you over time. Hey gang, I just want to jump in here with a couple of quick updates, big stuff going on. First of all, I got to thank Banfield, the pet hospital. Guys, uh, through a generous uh, grant from those guys, we are able to provide transcripts of both the Kona Shame Vet podcast and the Uncharted Veterinary podcast. They're doing this in the spirit of inclusivity and increasing accessibility to resources in the vet space. And so we were the beneficiaries of their generosity and we are able to have transcripts for everybody who wants to see them. Uh, you can head over to drandyrourke.com or unchartedvet.com, follow us on social media and you'll see these when they come out. But we're gonna be linking to transcripts just to make uh, these podcasts accessible to anyone and everyone who wants to um, who wants to participate, who wants to who wants to check them out. Uh, other updates that are important. Number one, strategic planning all up on you. If you're looking at 2022 and you're like, I, I wish I had a plan. <laughs> we, should, we should figure some things out about what we're doing. So we're not just putting out fires, but instead doing things that are actually important that we that we want to do. Guys, I got you covered, but you got to act fast. I am doing workshops and doing four workshops on strategic planning with my wingman, the one and only practice management goddess, Stephanie Goss. The first one is on January the 26th. 
The second one is February 9th, February 23rd, and March 9th. They all have uh, different focuses. The first one is on running a strategic planning meeting for your team. It's how do you get your people together and talk about where your business is going and make some decisions. And that is the one that I'll be doing on January 26th with uh, Stephanie Goss. You can register for them separately. They are $99 each to the public or buy them together as a bundle for $2.99. Uh, they are free to Uncharted members. So if you're like, I wanna do them all, and I've been putting off being an Uncharted member, this is a great reason to get on board and do it. So strategic planning workshops, I would love to see you there. They are super hands-on, super active, super useful. So that is going on, don't miss them. You gotta register, especially if you do the bundle, grab them before the first one goes. The April Uncharted Vet Conference is in Greenville, South Carolina. We are back in person. It is our homecoming, and that's the theme. It's homecoming. It's the five-year anniversary of Uncharted. It's gonna be a great time. We are gonna cap attendance uh, at 100 or less uh, just to keep uh, everybody safe. And um, But we're still gonna get together and do a wonderful conference. If you've never been to an Uncharted conference, they are super magical. It is not like other conferences. It is very active very engaged. You are going to meet people. You are going to make friends. You're going to talk about your business. The theme of this conference in April is all about running smoother, more enjoyable, more rewarding practices. It's not about getting more customers. It's not about working harder. It's not about finding things to do that you're not doing. It's about doing less things and making the things that you do now go more smoothly. So if you're like, oh, that sounds good. I'd like to be a part of that. Get over to UnchartedVet.com, get registered for the conference. You do have to be an Uncharted member to come to that, but you can grab your membership, get on board with the, with the conference. It is, um, it is something super special. You do not want to miss it. And finally, over on the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast, that's the podcast I do with my buddy, Stephanie Goss, we are talking about is human health insurance the problem with getting people to do pet insurance. Uh, Steph and I both believe that getting people to get their pets insured is a great way to ensure that those pets get the care that they need. Getting more clients insured means getting uh, more pets that have resources to get the care that they need, which means we get to do the job and the work that we really wanna do and that we enjoy doing. And so we get into this with our special guest, Melissa Gutierrez, and we talk about the barriers to getting people on board with pet health insurance. If you're like, hey man, I'd like to get more people on pet health insurance up in my practice, head over there, check it out. Subscribe to Uncharted it is a great podcast, totally free. We'd love to have you on board. And with that, I think that's enough. Let's get back into this episode. What what's the uh what's the sort of the median age range for interns and residents? Or I mean we're talking about people who are what, 28 to 32, 33 years old? Is that is that kind of the the basic age range for these people? Yeah. So every year, about a thousand people match, um, just over a thousand people match into internships through the VIRMP. And that's out of about 3,200 people that are graduating from veterinary schools. And so I'm not exactly sure what the average age of veterinary school graduates are right now, but it's somewhere in the mid, uh, mid to late twenties. And for internships or sorry, for residencies, um, it's just over 300 people. So about a third of those internships um, are, are matching people into residencies. Um, and again, it's taking some people um, anywhere between one and three internships. So if you add that on, yeah, most people that are finishing their residencies are probably around the age of about 30 um, or a little bit older. And how uh, how big is the variance in uh, in 
income among programs? Are they pretty uniformly low-paying programs? Are there some private practice residencies and interns out there that have a very different financial picture? Help, help me understand that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we address that in our paper. So when you look at academia, it's a pretty tight, narrow band. Um, most of the programs exist within um, a pretty narrow band somewhere somewhere in the in the 30s with an average salary somewhere. Um, I think somewhere around $34,000. But in academia, or sorry, in private practice, the range is much, much larger. Um, I believe the range was somewhere between the low 30s and all the way up to about $75,000. Um, and, uh, and, and I think there's a whole lot more flexibility, of course, in private practice. Um, an individual private practice may take one resident in one specialty, or they may take multiple residents and multiple specialties versus an academic program, which is likely to populate most of their specialties with multiple residents. So there's a different financial sort of commitment, I think, for the different hospitals, but there's clearly much more flexibility in setting salaries in that private or corporate structure. Yeah. Well, um, when we start to talk about when we start to talk about internship and residency programs and, and sort of the salary structure that we have, why, like, how do you, I guess, how do you explain the position that we're in there? So if I, if you say to me, hey, uh, you know, a significant percentage of people doing residencies, internships are making below living wage. If I said to you, why, how would you answer that question? I think there's a not great answer, which is that um, it's because the way we've always done it, it's the way we've always done it. And that's what it feels like is is <laughs> residents and, you know, residents and interns, yeah. like they, they work all the time and they don't make any money. And that's the way it's always been. But, you know, yeah. as, as the economics of vet medicine have changed, um, is, is there a reason that's persisting? Yeah, I, I think the other um, also not great answer is unfortunately that um, uh, we use the term in, in the paper that it's a monopsony-like market, which means basically you have a captive audience. Okay. And um, it's the people that really um, want to do residencies and internships and have the ability to make the choice to do that. And I think that's a very important point that we should revisit, but I'm not going to drill down on it in, in with the rest of this statement, okay. are are going to do this program no matter what. And so mm-hmm. it's not going to matter if you offer them $25,000 or $40,000 or $65,000, they will figure out a way to do it. Yeah. They'll say, they'll say, yes, they'll take the, they'll take the seat. Right. I mean, that isn't that is, isn't that a big part of our, of our student debt problem as well? Is that you have the you have so many people who are so motivated and they're going to take they're going to take the spot come hell or high water you know and I I've, I've struggled with that a lot is you say well there's the autonomy there's the autonomy part you know the personal responsibility part I guess uh, where people say I know what I'm signing up for and I'm signing up for this and there's another part where you go ah but it it's it feels more complicated than that where where people. They this the I love I love the term um, monopsony like market. I, I'm gonna I'm going to incorporate that into daily speech. I, I I'm in love with this term. So yeah, it, it, but it's, it does feel like a monopoly. Like there's if you want to be a vet, there's only one path to do it. And if you want to be a specialist, there's only one path to do it. And there's not a lot of opportunities. Right. You really have no leverage as you would in, in a larger market. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a Shakespeare wrote this tragedy into the profession where everybody's so passion driven that. It's going to at some point, um, at, at some point, 
play negatively against our, 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 you know, what's, what's, what's best for us in the end. And, and that is what happens. Um, everybody is so, you know, dedicated to the animals, to, um, to their education and honestly to each other. And this gets outside of, of course, just interns and residents that it's against, it's against rational thinking. It's yeah. against it's behavioral economics at its finest, um, that it's, it's irrational, but we all do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, you see it a lot in, in, uh, you know, technicians and assistants. We talk about, you know, the percentage of technicians and assistants uh, that make below a living wage. And there's, there's right. a high percentage. Correct. And you say, well, why do they do this? Why don't they go somewhere else? And, and I, I do feel like that that passion, that that desire to be a part of this specific profession, it, it almost holds our feet against the fire. It, not in a good way, you know, of, of like, I don't want to leave because I love this or this is this is what I feel called to do. I, I feel like calling is has become an increasingly loaded term. And I've, I've, I've started to push back against calling vet medicine a calling because I think it, it feeds that belief that this is my passion and I don't have any right. other options. And I, I, I feel like when we don't feel like we have any options, we, that's, that's when we sort of feel trapped. And I think that that's a big part of burnout. I think it's a great way of describing it. Um, I had a colleague tell me once, dreams are nightmares too. Because we all talk about how these are our dreams. And yeah, eventually, um, and, and we follow our dreams. And I, I, I believed in that my whole life. I mean, that's, that's why I became a veterinarian. That's why I went down mm -hmm. the paths I went down. And that's great. But that's not always necessarily going to lead you down the path of making choices that are going to optimally support your ability to live a safe or um, secure um, life that can support the other choices you want to make. And, um, you know, by the time the, the choice that you make when you're 25 or 30 is not necessarily the choice you would make when you're 40 or you're 50. Yeah. Um, but your 40 or 50 year old self has no ability to inform that person or vice versa. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to mediate those things um, or, or, or have to clean up the, the, the choices or account for them later on. And unfortunately, finances are things that end up being sort of a constant thread and permeate a, a lot of life in a continuous way. There's no, you can't, you can't make up for lost time when you're talking about compounding, you're talking about building wealth, or you're talking about retirement, things like that. Right. And you can't, yeah. I, uh, I, I have those thoughts a lot. If I could go back and talk to my younger self, what would I say? And the more, the more interesting question I think is if you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would your younger self hear and understand? And I think that's a harder question than what would I say? Because I know what I would say. And I think knowing younger Andy, I think it would all go right over his head, you know, or he would just be like, that's ridiculous. And, and it's like, I would not take <laughs> future, right. I would not take future Andy seriously at all. Like I would not, I would be like, that's ridiculous. Um, and so like knowing, knowing who you are at 20 and 25, you know, um, what, what is what is possible in in that phase of our life? Because once that phase is over, um, it's past. I, I think that there's, I, I hear sort of a, the cynical voice in my head that I'm sure that when we talk about uh, intern residency, compensation comes back and they say, but they're going to be a specialist. You know, like this is, yes, this is a bump in the road, but won't the ultimate outcome 
be so worth it and make this up? And I know that's sort of beyond the scope of, of the research that you published, but are you comfortable speaking to that a little bit of the financial picture coming out of a residency intern, intern program? Yeah. Is it, is, it the, is it the bounce back phenomenon that we like to think that it would be? Yeah. So um, I think that, uh, I, I think there are a lot of things that go into that. One, I think that it needs to be a, another element of this conversation that every decision we make, it, finances play a role in it, but it's not the only thing that plays a role. And certainly that's true for becoming a specialist. And um, I, I'll get into that a little bit more, I think, later. But but the financial outcome of specialty um, medicine is, you know, it's not universally lucrative. There are certain specialties where you can bank on, literally bank on coming out and making quite a lot of money. Um, there are, and, 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 you know, I've generated some of that evidence through previous publications. We've published on some of the um, uh, professional and personal life um, integration and finances for uh, ACBS and ACBIM diplomates. And certainly small animal surgeons, neurologists, cardiologists, those are individuals who come out and make quite a bit of money um, mm -hmm. or the average and median incomes for those individuals are quite high. And that data is, is just a couple of years old now. And we know that with the um, economic boom and the competitive market for those specialists right now, those numbers are only getting higher. And certainly anecdotal evidence for starting salaries for those individuals is um, is just fantastic. But um, it's not quite the same for some of the large animal surgeons. Um, there's some new data uh, that's actually also out on JAVMA now um, for ZooMed um, veterinarians, um, which shows that the average salaries are not very high. Um, and so it, it's not universally lucrative. And then when you start to factor in the other personal life choices about, you know, how much do you want to work? Um, are you taking time out of the workforce in those early years to start a family? Um, are you taking time out more than once to start a family? You know, that's that's time that you're not necessarily going to be earning money. And so, you know, it, it looks different depending on where you work, how you work and how you want to work. Mm -hmm. um, and so do you want to have to be tied to um, to a certain way of working or do you have there, there are only so many people that can become a certain type of specialist in any given year. So it's not universally lucrative. Where do you see, uh, where do you see possibility here? So what, I mean, with the takeaways and we're looking at this and we say, look at the, look at the strain that we're putting on, on our young sort of recent graduates who are going into advanced training. Uh, what do you think is possible? And what do you think it what do you think it takes to to sort of right the ship or 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 to make significant headway in setting in setting our colleagues up for success? So I think that there are a couple big um, I think that there are a couple big topics um, and and sort of ideally movements that should come out of this. Um, and and one of them, of course, is uh, the biggest one, of course, is improving the the incomes for interns and residents. They, if we've we've said for a long time that interns and residents, you know, cost money because they're they're not fully trained veterinarians. They slow us down, um, and that's part of the reason that their incomes or their salaries are so low. I yeah. think that 
if most of us who have worked in, in big specialty hospitals look back over the last couple of years during the pandemic and figure out how our hospitals stayed afloat and even look at the years when there wasn't a pandemic and um, and look at how we worked and how emergency rooms stayed functional, especially in hospitals where there are interns and residents, I think we can all see um, how valuable those individuals um, certainly have been recently and really have always been towards um, keeping the workflow in a positive direction and, and generating revenue. And as you mentioned earlier, um, supporting the teaching mission in a lot of hospitals. I think if we were to be able to quantify some of that, it would demonstrate that they much more than generate their own income um, and generate a much higher income. Um, we talk about in the paper some other examples of how postgraduate um, medically or scientifically educated um, trainees in this country, both MD residents and also um, those undergoing uh, postgraduate training programs like through the NIH, um, how those individuals are valued, by which I mean, what sort of incomes are they making? And so I think that there are ways to quantitatively value their time in a much more supportive and effective way. And I think making that step would go a long way towards supporting these individuals, which I think leads me to the second point, which I think is really important, that these the choice to do an internship or residency is really multifactorial. It's not just, do I want to make a lot of money as a specialist or do I want to or not want to make so little money as a um, as an internal resident. I think that there are a lot of people out there that don't feel that they can spend those years making so little money. They either have a lot of debt, they have other responsibilities, it's a stressor they don't feel that they can take on for other reasons, which essentially means there's an entire population where we have limited their professional choices. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a choice that I believe is open to everybody. Um, and what we want to do in veterinary medicine is leave that choice open to everybody. We want every choice to be on the table. It doesn't mean everybody will match into whatever program they want to, but the choices should be there for everybody and they should be comfortable for everybody. And that's not what we've created. Yeah. And so creating a more stable economic situation for postgraduate veterinary trainees creates a more equitable future and more equitable opportunity for everybody in the profession, no matter what their background or situate current situation or future situation would be. And I think that's very important. And then I think the third part of that gets into what you mentioned earlier, which is the idea of diversity, supporting women, supporting families. Um, Lisa Greenhill and James Lloyd put together um, the AAVMC, I think, focus on diversity report this last year. And it showed that Black, Indigenous, people of color and Pell Grant students were more likely to enter veterinary school um, carrying debt and carrying a higher volume of debt than mm -hmm. white students, which means that those individuals, their threshold for being able to accrue more debt or take on a position that imposes more financial strain is likely to be lower at the end of veterinary right. school. And we already see that 
there's much lower representation of people of color and various um, ethnicity in specialties. Um, I've generated quite a bit of that data in my previous research reports, and there's a lot of that coming out over the past year or so since some of the specialty colleges have been effective at putting together their own um, their own commissions, and there have been some great new groups popping up to, um, to work on the really important diversity issues that we have. And so that means that that's one of the big groups that we are limiting choice to um, and limiting opportunity from. We're just creating another barrier, essentially. Uh, and I think that's true also for women, families, anybody that has children. Um, a salary in the low 30,000s is hardly going to cover childcare for people. So unless yeah. they have a partner who can really carry the entire load of the family, um, it might not be an option for those yeah. individuals. And we see that women specialists are less likely to be married or have children, and almost none of, very, very few of them have children during residency. And even a relatively small proportion of men have children during residency. So again, we're limiting opportunities for a large portion of our workforce. Yeah. Dr. Samarella, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for uh, talking with me as always. Are there, uh, are there any last points, words of wisdom, uh, pieces of advice that you'd like to leave us with? I think the 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 um, ten thousand foot perspective on this is that we need to think about how we value the time, education, and and work of really everybody in our profession. That's not just the interns and residents. That's the technicians. Mm -hmm. It's some of our general practitioners. If we can't value ourselves and each other, then how do we ask people outside of our profession to value us? And so. This is a holistic idea, right? This is about all of us. Um, and this is the time to take a harder look at that idea. And um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people in this profession that we need to think about when we think about that. And um, a lot of corners of the profession that we need to solve that problem for. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, thank you so much. Your article, Comparison of Resident and Intern Salaries with the Current Living Wage as a Quantitative Estimate of Financial Strain Among Postgraduate Veterinary Trainees is out online in JAVMA. I put a link in the show notes. It'll be out in print uh, January 1. Thank you again for being here. Thanks so much, Andy. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. As always, the best, kindest, nicest thing you can possibly do for me if you like the episode is to leave an honest review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast episodes. Uh, it's how people find the show. It gives me some uh, guidance about what, what people like. Uh, it just, and it keeps me encouraged to keep doing the episode. So uh, I really appreciate it. Guys, take care of yourselves. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.